Baseball Tonight, the podcast. This is the Baseball Tonight podcast for Tuesday, July 19th, 2022. And today will be better than yesterday. Producing from his home studio in the foothills of Connecticut is Taylor Schwenk. I'm Buster Only, working from my hotel room in Los Angeles, where last night we had the home run derby. And Taylor, that was a lot of fun. Yeah, it uh, it came through in a big way. Best day of the year, non-birthday edition for Sarah Langs. I mean, really provided a lot of entertainment Juan Soto you know making everyone sweat it out at the end you know will he won't he I want a couple dollars off that I mean it was it was a good night for all involved including you absolute scenes on the field afterward with Juan Soto and Bad Bunny and I I absolutely loved watching that that was phenomenal oh I know I would just like think it is uh we're getting you know (laughs) asked that last question in the interview I'm like I'm just gonna get out of the way because this scene is too cool you know what I mean I do not fit in this scene with these uh (laughs) This amazing crew. So there were so many interesting storylines during the course of this event. And right away, what was really neat was the emergence of Julio Rodriguez, the Mariners rookie. Five seconds to go. Here's another one that's just going to get up in the bleachers by about four rows. Time has run out. 32 home runs for Julio Rodriguez. An astounding leadoff. From the rookie for the Seattle Mariners. Yeah, he was so good that you're wondering, are they using extra juice baseballs? (laughs) He was so incredible. That was Roxy Bernstein on ESPN Radio with that call. And in the middle of that round, Mookie Betts walked through. He's carrying his daughter, and he stopped and said to to Rodriguez, uh, yeah, just keep it going. And then when I stopped Mookie and asked him about that, he looked at me nice and said, I've never seen him in person. Oh, my God. Like, he was in awe. So Julio Rodriguez beats Corey Seager in the first round. Well, Albert Pujols faced Kyle Schwarber in the first round, and this was what happened with Albert Pujols getting the first crack. And there he goes. Albert Pujols gets seven in the extra 60 seconds. (laughs) Wow. I mean, he put on a show just one after the other. Rapid succession. Yeah, Albert became the crowd favorite during this event. You heard Doug Glanville talk about how he had that flurry of home runs in extra time. And then Schwarber came to the plate. Deep drive, right center, top of the bleachers. Another liner to right. There it goes, 18. Schwarber to center, 19. Can't get the last one off, and Albert Pujols advances. He beats him 20 to 19. Albert Pujols, the number eight seed, 42 years old, beats the number one seed, Kyle Schwarber. So in the second round, Julio Rodriguez faced Pete Alonso, the two-time defending champion, the Darth Vader of this event, because he's dominated that universe for a while. Here is Julio Rodriguez again putting on a show. He's at 30 with five seconds remaining in bonus time. One last pitch. Rodriguez to left. Will it have enough? Off the base of the wall in left center. 30 for Julio Rodriguez after he had 34 in the first round. Yeah, just incredible numbers. And that set up a really difficult challenge for Pete Alonso. It just didn't seem comfortable during his round. Left of dead center, Pete Alonso, the polar bear with another one. Straight away center, time has run out. And the two-time defending champ has been knocked out by the rookie. 
in the semifinals. You had Albert Pools against Juan Soto. Albert put up 15. Juan Soto followed, and this is what happened. Now 40 seconds to go, needing one more to get to the championship. There it is. And there it is. Home run Soto to the left of dead center. He's hitting for insurance now. They don't carry over, unfortunately, like your cell phone minutes do. (laughs) But Juan Soto advances, so our championship will feature the 23-year-old Juan Soto and the 21-year-old Julio Rodriguez. So I ran over to Sarah Langs where she was sitting, and I said, I just want to double-check this. If Julio Rodriguez wins in the final, he'll be the youngest derby winner ever. She said, yes. And I asked her if Juan Soto wins, he'd be the second youngest derby winner ever. And she said, yes. That was the final for Juan Soto, who, of course, was the whole uh, center of conversation the entire day during media availability because of all the conversation about whether or not he's going to be traded. And I got more information on that coming up when I speak with Carl Ravitch. Here's what Julio Rodriguez wound up with in his round. High fly ball, left center, Rodriguez. Will it carry? It does. Number 18 and the last one to the left of dead center. And it hits up against the base of the wall. Julio Rodriguez, the rookie from the Mariners, finishes here. His first everything here this week in L.A. In the home run derby, he put on a show. He put on a show, but he looked tired. Juan Soto followed. He's on the 405 right now. He's still going. This one might hit the scoreboard in right center. Huge blast by Soto. Your derby champion as he chucks the bat high into the air. Juan Soto, the Washington Nationals, wins the 2022 T-Mobile Home Run Derby in L.A. And right after that, I've spoke with Juan Soto. Why the second youngest home run derby champion ever. How do you feel? It feels amazing. It feels tiring, first of all. But it feels amazing, you know? Just that hard, hard work I put in and everything. It just felt amazing. All right, your strategy coming in, how did that work out for you? It feels, it, it worked out pretty well. I just tried to concentrate to square all the balls and try to drive it because I know I have the power to pull it off. What about the performance? Julio Rodriguez. Amazing, amazing. Great young kid. He's a, a lot of power. I know he was really tired after the first, second round, but he just get the chance to get to the finals, and I get the chance to hit in front of, uh, after him. What was it like tonight with Albert Pujols? Oh, he was amazing. I mean, face one of the legends of Dominican Republic is one of the things of the best. <laughs> so everyone... Everyone in baseball is talking about your future. The next few weeks, what do you want to have happen? Right now, I don't even think about it. I think I'm, I'm a champion, and I will be a champion for the Nationals. In the press availability that followed, Soto was asked more about the trade rumors. A couple of weeks ago, they were saying they will never trade me, and now they, all these things that came out. Uh, it feels really uncomfortable. You don't know what to trust, but at the end of the day, uh, it's, it's out of my hands. Yeah, so that was earlier in the day. You could hear it was uh, more quiet. Um, it was interesting because during that press availability earlier in the day, his agent, Scott Boris, was standing right next to him. I've never seen that. And so Soto talking about how uncomfortable it is, given the fact that Mike Rizzo said earlier that they're not going to trade him. Now they are going to talk about trading him. Uh, at the end of the day, here was Soto talking about the whole day. 
Juan, you had a busy day. If you answered a lot of questions about your contract, you come out here, you win this thing in three rounds. Uh, how would you describe your day start to finish? <laughs> I'm a lone survivor. <laughs> I've been going through all this stuff, and I'm still here standing up and with my chin up all the time. And that shows you I can go through anything. So, Taylor, a great day for Juan Soto. What else you got? Buster, I got to compliment you, man. You, you're in a packed stadium. The place is going wild. Juan Soto wins the home run derby, and you got the huevos, the stones to ask this man about the, you know, everything that's swirling around him with the, the trade and the contract. I, I mean, that's just, that's phenomenal journalism right there, boys and girls, if you are uh, studying that sort of thing. Uh, two things to mention. The Captain, episode one, aired last night after the home run derby. It's all about Derek Jeter. He was the face of the New York Yankees, a five-time World Series champion, the most popular and admired player in baseball, and one of the great sports superstars of any age. The Captain tells the story of Derek Jeter's life and Hall of Fame career anchored by exclusive, extensive, unprecedentedly candid interviews with Jeter alongside his family and dozens of teammates, rivals, and observers. Catch episode two Thursday, July 21st at 9 p.m. Eastern on ESPN and streaming on ESPN Plus. Also, ESPN in partnership with Peyton Manning's Omaha production, they present the VC show with eight-time NBA All-Star Vince Carter, his co-host Rod Roz. They're talking all things basketball with some of the biggest names in sports and entertainment. They will give their unfiltered thoughts on the NBA, and Vince will share stories from his illustrious 22-year career. That's the VC show. Listen to that wherever you get your podcasts. Dogs are an important part of our lives, and keeping them protected is a top priority, especially against nasty parasites. That's why you got to check out NexGuard Plus, a Foxaloner, Moxidectin, and Pyrantal chewable tablets. NexGuard Plus chews provide one and done monthly protection that kills fleas and ticks, prevents heartworm disease, plus it treats and controls roundworms and hookworms. That's a whole lot of protection packed into a delicious beef-flavored soft chew designed to make monthly dosing easy and enjoyable. So the next time you're at the vet, ask about NexGuard Plus Chews. They're the one-and-done monthly parasite protection you want for your dog. Used with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurological disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting preventive. We're driven by the search for better. When it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash buster. Just go to indeed.com slash buster right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash buster. 
Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All aboard. It's the Rabbit Train with Carl Rabbit. Carl Rabbit was the host of the Home Run Derby on Monday night. I, Carl, I'm sure you this morning, as you and I talk on Tuesday morning, still processing what we saw, which was just a lot of fun. What'd you think? Yeah, I mean, it's always fun, that's for sure. And, you know, I think last night, to me, Julio Rodriguez was the story. We, I, I guess that's the takeaway from Home Run Dirties. There may be a dominant figure in them. That doesn't mean that person necessarily wins it. We've seen guys have more home run totals and yet not be the champion. I mean, Josh Hamilton's the best example of it. But I thought Julio Rodriguez arrived on the national stage last night with his performance in the first Really, the first two rounds, but even in the in the final round, I mean, he was great, and and Soto was able to overtake him. I Maybe mean, it was about Julio Rodriguez. Um, it was about maybe the the shortcomings last night, the difficulty of all this of Schwarber and Alonso. And in the end, it's amazing the guy that's in the middle of this. He's sort of in the eye of the hurricane, uh, given all the stuff that's floating around. Juan Soto is able to able to win it. But it was about Rodriguez and a, and a wonderful night and a great venue. Um, with the crowd getting into it, the fans getting into it, uh, and obviously the players around Pujol. So a lot of really, a lot of good high moments. But to me, it was about Julio. So I told the story about uh, Mookie Betts passing by and saying something to him and then saying to me, I've never seen him in person. Oh, my God. That's mm-hmm. kind of the way that it felt watching him in this event because, Carl, I, you know, we've seen Pete Alonso, who has that unbelievable power and, and has dominated this event in back-to-back years. Watching Rodriguez and uh, his swings last night, it, it was like, wow, this guy's got power, yeah. but it was such comfortable athletic power, if I'm making sense to you. Absolutely. I mean, Ken Griffey sat with us uh, late in the yes, derby. Yes, that's a per- perfect. And we asked him about Julio Rodriguez, and he said, you know, in a sense, look at him. He's huge. You know, he's a big dude. Um, and if, if he wins, he's got to go defend in Seattle. But it was it was really the body I mean, to what Griffey was referring to. You know, it's almost like watching uh, some some great golfer who has that perfect body for that sport. He, he's got he's got it. I mean, he's lanky. He's strong. He's he's sort of a combo of if you want to just stick with Mariners, Richie Sexton and Alex Rodriguez. He's he's powerful. He's life. Uh, he's he's also lights up a room with that smile of his. He's he's incredibly composed. And again, you you jump out of the gate in your first derby as a 21 year old, and you knock 32 balls over the wall at Dodger Stadium without a cage around you in a batting practice setting, and yet you have a full house. That was that was just incredible. That's that was the most impressive part of the night for me. I'm with you. It, it was to the degree that first round, because he was the first guy to step into the box. I'm thinking, okay, what's up with the juice balls? <laughs> like, did they overjuice the balls this year? And then, you know, as a, a players follow him, Corey Seager, you know, terrific player, and he had a good night hitting over 20 home runs, but he wasn't yeah. even close, you know? And then, and that gave uh, that gave more context. I thought, you know, another great moment on the night was the way that the other players uh, treated Albert Pujols in the way they regarded Albert Pujols during this event. I agree. I think the legends uh, selections that the commissioner has at his disposal are really cool. I, I think it's really important. There was an article by Dave Schoenfeld today on ESPN.com 
about uh, the bus rides over and Garrett Cole uh, having the ability to talk to Miguel Cabrera and kind of passing down information. The article was all about the all-star voting and, and from some of the all-stars, their perspectives when they were kids and used to go to the ballpark and, and use those pamphlets where you would punch out the little square next to a guy's name. And really the legacy idea of, of how difficult it is to get here. And I thought from Pujol's perspective, it was equally important for him to, to enjoy that moment. I mean, his, he was beaming and I thought that was really cool to, to recognize again, how appreciative he is a for the opportunity, but to be recognized by his peers. I mean, the, the most demonstrative guy out there when Pujols was at home plate was Soto who ended up being the winner. You know, he, he was he was kind of using his hands to, to cool him off and praise him and, in a sense, bow down to him. Manny Machado's obviously been really outspoken about the impact that Albert Pujols has had on the game, and perhaps some people have been taking it for granted and we need to pay more attention to it. I thought the players, and it started with the, with the Dominican players and eventually it cascaded into the entire rosters of both teams going up to to celebrate Albert Pujols, you know, the legend and, and, and what he's meant to the game. And, and I thought his embracing of that, uh, being around his family was, was a real heartwarming moment. Yeah. Paul Goldschmidt watched a lot of the Derby next to me with his two kids. Mm. And he, you know, is it very interesting? Cause you know, Albert, he can be very serious about his work or you could see the beaming Albert, like we saw last night. And Paul walked up to me and he goes, do you think Albert's, you know, enjoying this being in the Derby? And I, and I looked at him and I said, well, you tell me, he goes, well, you know, better than I do. That's what he said to me. <laughs> and he, he mentioned to me that uh, when Albert was an unsigned free agent in the wintertime, he was talking to guys like AJ Pollock who play with him with the Dodgers. And, and AJ was raving about him as a teammate and how much he helped other players. Yeah. And I think that's what the response was last night when Schwarber, gets knocked out, doesn't match him in home runs. He turns and he bows to Albert. And Albert, you're right, he was just beaming, and it was great for a guy who should be a unanimous selection uh, for the Hall of Fame when his name hits the ballot. Pete Alonso felt a little off to me last night, like right from the beginning. It, you know, he, yeah. in, in past years, he just seemed to have more fun with it. Last night, I, I kind of wonder if he put a lot of pressure on himself. Yeah, well, but yes, I agree. Whether he put pressure on himself, whether he felt it from other people and as a result put it on himself, or he just recognized uh, th this whole event has become about me now. I mean, I own it. I, I made the statement last year. I'm the best power hitter on the planet, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, absolutely. You know, we got used to seeing Alonzo run off seven, eight, nine, what felt like 10 homers in a row. None of that happened last night. I, I thought both he and Kyle Schwarber never got into a groove. Again, the, the guy that got into the groove last night was Julio Rodriguez. He, he was the only one who seemed to hit multiple balls over the wall in a row, and it became very machine-like. For Alonzo, the, the focus seemed to be on his breathing, his weightlifting that we showed, his eyes closed, his meditating. No, nobody else was doing that. It obviously served him well in the prior two derbies. It, it just didn't click last night. And again, it's another reminder to me that these are human beings. They're not machines yes. that do this. This is a difficult thing to do. It's not going to a driving range where the ball is sitting on the top of a tee and you can repeat your swing every time and have it do the same thing. 
balls are coming in at different angles. The, the batting practice pitcher may not be throwing exactly where you want it. For Rodriguez, that was a huge part of it. Um, Franmi Pena put the ball exactly in the same spot, it felt like, every time. So he could repeat that swing. Schwarber, Alonzo, uh, and others struggle with that. So there are human beings involved in this. And, you know, look, in the end, there's a million dollars involved with it. There's a lot of people's eyeballs on you. It may have been pressure, but it's, it's real people trying to do something incredibly difficult. And in his case, trying to win three in a row, which no one's ever done. And, and maybe there's a reason no one's ever done it because it's damn hard to do. Yeah, we're going to see Pete this weekend because uh, we on Sunday Night Baseball have the Mets. And so I'm looking forward to, to talking with him. He's been a great champion, and I've loved his participation in this event. And it'll be interesting to have a conversation with him about this year uh, and what went on. Uh, Juan Soto is very interesting because he winds up winning this thing, and I didn't ever have a – you know, you talked about that – that moment where you see a guy get on a roll, he never really had that last night, but the fact that he was able to get through yesterday and win the event, as he said in the post uh, event press conference says something about him. Like he had a long day uh, where he knew he was going to have to answer all kinds of questions about uh, the trade stuff. And we'll get to that in a second. Uh, But that to me was uh, about, it showed as much about Soto as anything, the endurance of fielding all those questions and all that focus and then finding a way to win the title. Well, it's another reminder that anytime there's a situation going on in a player's life, and we've heard this forever, the the most peaceful place to be is on a baseball field. So Juan Soto is far more uncomfortable listening to those questions, having Scott Boris stand next to him, than he was when the uniform went on, he saw a baseball, he had a bat, he recognized my job is to hit a ball over the wall, and I can do this as well as anybody that's in the All-Star game, let alone the Home Run Derby. This is my comfort zone. I have the ability to compartmentalize, block everything out. He did that really well. He, of course, you know, came on our, our set afterwards, and Eduardo Perez and I were talking with him, and, you know, blocking out the distractions I brought up at the end, and you, you could just see that that part for him was fairly easy because there is nobody asking me questions about what's going to happen next. I see my guy out there. I see a ball. I have a bat. I've been doing this since I was basically three. And, uh, and, and I got a chance here, as he said to us too, I I got, I got 10 homers. I got a minute and a half. I need nine. I'm now at another place where I can win this dang thing. So let's go and do that. And he was able to do it. And you're right. There there was never one of those long runs where every ball came in and every ball went out. It was, it was sort of a steady, consistent drip of power. And his right chart showed it was, it was not just to right field. It was all over the place. But in that moment, not a problem. I've been doing this my whole life. Answering questions about $500 million contracts, not comfortable. <laughs> Hit the ball 500 feet, more comfortable. Exactly. All right. So I'll tell you what I learned yesterday because I made a bunch of calls uh, going into the evening and talking with folks around baseball about the Soto trade stuff. This is what I was hearing. The perception is that the Nationals right at this moment are motivated sellers Uh, Some executives I spoke with believe he's going to be traded before the August 2nd deadline. Uh, One source said absolutely the transition of ownership of the Nationals is driving this because if you're the incoming owners, the Nationals, 
then you are going to want this situation resolved one way or the other. You know, the Nationals offered him the 15-year, $440 million deal. He said no, which is totally his prerogative. And at that point, if you're the incoming ownership, you do not want to have a Juan Soto trade to be the first item on your docket. So the perception is, is that he's going to get moved. And then the question becomes, which teams are in the best position to make a deal? And this is, at this point, you know, they're not too deeply into that question uh, because they just had the draft on Sunday. And so what I heard from people yesterday was the San Diego Padres, very motivated, maybe not necessarily to sign him to the Whopper deal because they already have Fernando Tatis Jr. signed. They got Manny Machado signed, maybe taking on a third guy at that kind of rate is unworkable. But for to get Soto for this year and for the next two years could be a great thing for the Padres. The San Diego, uh, excuse me, St. Louis Cardinals, Absolutely have the type of players that the Nationals are asking for, which are major league ready talents. Uh, And like the Padres, the Cardinals might not be looking at Soto as being someone they would sign for years and years and years. But for the next two and a half years, he'd be a great addition for them, especially in a a lineup which is generally very right-handed. You could drop Soto right between uh, Goldschmidt and Arenado. Yankees, Dodgers. Two teams, the usual suspects that could make a deal for him. But what I'm hearing is those teams might be asking the question, boy, we don't want to trade all these prospects for a player who we're going to have to give a big contract to. We want some certainty around that. The Yankees, what I was told was they're focused on Aaron Judge at the moment. Uh, The Texas Rangers, I'm going to be talking with Kylie McDaniel coming up about uh, the relationship that the Rangers and Scott Boris seem to to be developing here as we go along. Mm -hmm. People have asked about the Mets and the Braves. Uh, I'm told that the Nationals will not put Soto on a platter for teams in the division, which makes a lot of sense for me. So, Carl, that's a lot of information I just spewed at you. Uh, you know, uh, give me give me some takeaways on the whole Juan Soto trade conversation, which will dominate the sport for the next two weeks. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the home run derby champion is absolutely the biggest story for the next two weeks. Uh, look, all of those all of those teams make sense. A Boris relationship makes sense, but I think Scott Boris can create relationships with any team if you're bringing the the most appetizing uh, piece to the party. So uh, I think the San Francisco Giants would be very interesting, given their history with Barry Bonds. And here you introduce another power hitting guy from the left side that can put balls in the bay. Um, I, I think a conversation from an owner who was able to say to his director of baseball operations or his general manager. I want you to look into this because 440 million, 500 million, I have the ability and the desire. If you think it's a prudent move to spend it, I don't care about luxury taxes. Steve Cohen, of course, jumps to my mind where when something like this is put in front of him, he will look at it and he will ask his folks to look into it. Because while that barrier for the Yankees is Aaron judge and the Padres may have other obligations, there seems to be, and at least in my opinion, if he wants to do something, he's made it clear that money's not going to be uh, a hurdle, that a luxury tax is not going to be a, a stop sign. So I think that would be a conversation he would have to say, don't worry about that part. If you think it it's worth it for our team, I'll do that. If Jacob deGrom is going to walk away, we're going to have some more money. For a variety of reasons, I think the Mets will always be in any conversation because of the owner. The same way when George Steinbrenner was running the Yankees, they were in that conversation. 
And I think you're right. I think it's going to be really interesting. And I don't think there's, there's any back channeling between the agent and an owner because a lot of teams would like some cost certainty. Uh, if we're going to give up what, you know, what the Marlins and Tigers did when Miguel Cabrera was traded as a youngster. I got to know that we're going to keep him for longer than just two years. I, I would really like to know that. It's not like a sign and trade. Uh, that's not going to happen. But you'd like some assurance, wouldn't you, that I'm going to give up my my long-term, you know, present future for someone yeah. I know is going to be really great for a couple. That That's a hard one. But but I wouldn't put it past uh, somebody for reaching out and saying, here's what it's going to take. If you trade him, I can I can tell you this is what it's going to take to sign him. How comfortable are you with that? Maybe that gets floated in the next next two weeks. If you're not looking for 15 and, and 440, what are you looking for? I think it's a fair question for a team willing to trade for him. Uh, what is it that, that would be the number? What, what are we talking about? And if it's we don't know because we got two more years to play. And when we get to free agency, we'll have that conversation. Then it's such a unique situation with such a uniquely supremely talented kid. But um, I would I would add those teams, the Giants and the Mets, to yours. Um, and 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 we'll see if a mystery team shows up. But it it's going to be very very interesting. And I, and look, you're right. Knowing that this isn't just for the rest of this year does change things. That's a unique part of this. Yeah, uh, and I, it'll be interesting to see how it develops. I personally don't blame the incoming Washington ownership of course. Uh, to, to, to require that. I would not want that to be the first move. I thought Derek Jeter's big mistake when he went and took over the Marlins, it's not apples to apples because it's a different market. I thought his big mistake was, here, I'm coming in to take over the Marlins, and then I'm going to trade Stanton, and I'm going to trade Yelich, and I'm going to trade JT Real Muto, because I think from the Marlins fans' perspective, that was, like, great. We got the same old deal with them tearing down the team. That would be a concern for me if I'm going to buy a team to have the first perception of the team's fan base to be, great, you just traded our superstar player. Yeah, but in the case of Jeter, I think the only difference is nobody had turned down a $441 million deal. That, that right. you, you know, In the case of Soto, you know if, in fact, he's not moved, you know the elephant in the room here. I mean, we all are aware you're going to have to deal with that. Now, by the same token, Buster, if if there's another Steve Cohen out there, this may also entice you to say, oh, wait a second, if I go in there and buy them and I have the money and I don't care about that, I could sign Juan Soto. Like I, I could keep him. I mean, it could go It could go in that direction if there's, there's some billionaire who's willing to do something like that to keep him. But, yeah, I, I think that's the biggest difference for me is you you already know this situation exists. And and let's, uh, you know, you can blow up the way that things played out in Miami with Derek and the fact that he's gone there, but there's also indications that whatever plan, you know, they had, it, it's it may be beginning to work. I mean, their pitching has been unbelievable, and they, they don't have those contracts, and they can swim in it. I mean, isn't that what ultimately publicly led him to leave is this is now not going in the direction I thought it was. He was apparently interested in bringing in Castellanos and the the organization made a decision not to, and and he left. Speaking of Jeter last night, we had the first episode of the captain. Uh, I haven't had a chance to watch any of the episodes in, in, uh, in their entirety. I'm hoping to do that sometime in the next couple of weeks. You and I got to, to tape a show. What was it last week? Uh, yep. In advance of this, uh, what uh, what have you heard around the edges about the the documentary? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I saw those those clips that we ran in the show. I think if you're a fan of baseball, if you're a Yankee fan, if you're a Jeter fan, uh, I, I think they're they're from what I saw appears to be a fairly uncensored, unfiltered version of people's perceptions of what it was like to to cover him, to play with him, to play against him, to know him off the baseball field, which, you know, I think a lot of people love to have curtains pulled back on superstars, especially those who are reluctant to have it pulled back when they're performing, uh, makes for a really unique and interesting show and and like you it's been a little busy the last uh the last couple of weeks so i haven't had an opportunity <laughs> to watch him but i certainly intend to because you know i was there and and probably watched as many Derek jeter games on a nightly basis when we were doing baseball tonight seven nights a week uh to to want to understand the story that was going on around him on and off the baseball field i, I watched a little last night after the derby i got a chance to see buck showalter you know he was featured in the show and he talked about steinbrenner and wanting to get rid of four of his coaches and buck you know told the story of his dad telling him at some point you're going to have to take a stand son and it's not going to be comfortable and you know those those are the stories behind the stories that i think make these 30 for 30 and these documents uh, documentaries really interesting so i have a real interested interest in finding out how this whole thing kind of played out over Derek's career i I'm, i am interested in it and i think watching what i did uh it, it is intriguing to see the people that are involved and in some of the things that they've said Yep. I, I can't wait to watch that might with everything swirling around Juan Soto at this point, that might be on August 3rd, the day after the trade deadline. <laughs> Maybe that's when I'll be binge watching. All right, Carl, uh, good to talk with you. Thanks for getting up early. Uh, enjoy this. I know you're doing baseball tonight later today. Uh, and of course we've got the first game of the second half on Thursday, Dodgers and giants. Looking forward to it. See you Buster. You can now stream the most MLB games on DirecTV without a satellite dish. Yes, the clutch hits, the strikeouts, grand salamis, web gems, with nothing on your roof. So whoever's up there, whether it's roofers, Santa, birds, old-timey chimney sweeps, moody teenagers, thrill-seeking raccoons, you name it, they won't find a satellite dish. But you will find your MLB games on DirecTV. That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, 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 with nothing on your roof. Call 1-800-DIRECTV or visit directtv.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Vivid Seats wants to get you to the games you love this spring. Experience every pitch, assist, and game-winning shot live and in person. And the best part? Each transaction is a step toward a free 11 ticket with Vivid Seats rewards. Score unbeatable perks like free tickets, surprise seat upgrades, and annual birthday deals. As the official ticketing partner of ESPN, Vivid Seats is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with Code Baseball. That's Code Baseball. Visit VividSeats.com or download the app today. Vivid Seats. Experience it live. Kylie McDaniels reports on prospects in the draft for ESPN, which means that this week is your busiest of the year. Kylie, how you doing? Doing good. Just got home late last night, and I'm uh, ready to watch day three, write my reviews, work on my 2023 rankings, and never stops. <laughs> well, 
hopefully it stops for you this weekend and you get a chance to sleep because it is crazy how busy you are. And then you mix in a cross-country flight in the middle of all that. Uh, first off, the number one overall pick, as you saw, because I was getting notes like you were from Lee Singer uh, about the changing odds about who the number one pick was going to be, which seemed to indicate there were, stu- there were there might be stuff going on behind the scenes. There might not be stuff going on behind the scenes. What did you think of the number one overall pick and, and how we got to that point? Yeah, I was actually getting excited because I thought I'd, I've been following this for a while. I'd never even heard people quote the betting lines before. I'm like, does this mean there's more interest? Like, is this going to, a rating's going to go up? Because obviously all those spikes you're referring to, none of them ended up being correct. So clearly right. just people, I was actually speculating, are some of the agents of these players that aren't going to be picked paying uh, the max bets to make these things move to create headlines for a couple thousand dollars. Like, yeah, and Kyle, let me jump in. Let me jump in real quick. It reminded me of, you remember the, uh, the movie eight men out when, mm-hmm. you know, the, the white Sox or the black Sox at that time, the, the betters begin to get a sense that the black Sox have, have thrown the series. And so all of a sudden the money shifts dramatically. And so that, that's what I was thinking. Like, Oh my God, what is this based on? What is the information based on? But go ahead, pick it up from there. Yeah, Cause in the NBA draft that happened, it ended up being correct. The last minute stuff. So you kind of thought like, Oh, maybe some people are onto something, but I'm like, I'd like to think I'm as connected as anybody for all of the picks and all of the teams, whereas any one person may know more than I did, but yeah, it did not be the case. Uh, yeah, I was also hearing, I was actually going back and forth passing right before the draft because uh, Baltimore Pittsburgh notoriously will not tell you who their pick is until like the card is in and like, we're not supposed to spoil the picks. So I didn't want to do that either, but I wanted to figure out who it was and, you know, put out an updated mock or, you know, whatever it was. And it sounded like Drew Jones was going to go second and we just couldn't get any information about who was going first. And me logicking it out, I thought Samar Johnson was a hair better than Jackson Holiday and would be maybe a million dollars cheaper. So I figured that's who it would be if it wasn't Drew Jones. Obviously, it was Jackson Holiday. I think they just preferred him a little more as a player. For context, if you were to put them all on a top 100 right now, which I'm about to, I had Drew Jones 24th, Tamar Johnson 30th, Jackson Holiday 36. So they're all within 12 spots of each other, which if you follow the top 100s, those could all flip within about six weeks of playing. Like by the offseason, I think they'll probably be in that order, but it'll be very close. So it's really just down to like what sort of flavor of player you want and left-hand hitting shortstop that is maybe the most polished of those three right now and comes with some upside and is maybe between Drew Jones and Tamar Johnson on price, like totally defensible. I'd actually told uh, Baltimore that there are, I think there are three defensible choices at one. And after they took holiday, I said, congrats on taking one of my three uh, acceptable picks. And pretty quickly they sent back a smiley face. <laughs> so tell me who uh, he reminds you of, you know, which is always the fun game that uh, we play with the draft. It's a tough one. So I noticed the tool grades, I think are identical to the tool grades I put on Marcelo Meyer last year, who obviously physically is more of a six, three, six, four long lanky, like different kind of body. But I, I think, Holiday's gotten to those tools a little more quickly and Meyer's now a top 20 prospect in baseball. So obviously that's like a decent cop to have. I think there, I was talking to Chris Burke on our set. We think there's a good bit of Dansby Swanson in there, how he's sort of grown into the power is a plus runner can play short was seen as sort of a hit first guy at Vanderbilt. He's got all those same elements, but it's left-handed. And at this point, Dansby Swanson was maybe he'll play at Vanderbilt as opposed to Jackson holiday is the number one pick in the draft. So obviously, you know, further along at the same stage, I would also say his high school field is a little on the small side. And I think he hit almost 20 home runs. His swing was leaning into power. Like he was sort of adjusting it for the park, which gave me a little bit of Trevor story vibes as well. Just like a big dude swinging hard that can really play short. So I think he's in that area of like, pick your all-star shortstop. He'll have one thing that is not in common with that guy, but I'll have a bunch of other stuff in common with him. And he could kind of take this in whatever direction he wants. 
Tell me a player who you think will emerge in the big leagues the fastest, which is really for a lot of fans what they care about because you look at a guy like Spencer Strider, you know, being a fourth-round pick and having impact, potentially rookie of the year candidate for the Atlanta Braves. So, I mean, the, the first guy where the sales pitch is this guy's going to get there fast is Jamar Rocker because coming off a of shoulder surgery, throwing a couple innings at a time, he's not ramped up to start. So why not just throw him in double A if that looks good in the bullpen a couple of times, just throw him in the big leagues because I think he'll be in the big leagues next year. And then, you know, convert him to starting, stretch him out, you know, see exactly what you have. I mean, that's the first case um, where I think how quick you get there is a big part of it. There's a number of good relievers in this draft. Obviously, Ben Joyce is one that I think a lot of people have gravitated to. Um, I think uh, Landon Sims, the sort of Craig Kimbrell-esque reliever out of Mississippi State, just had Tommy Johnson. When he comes back, he'll also be on that fast track. I think those are probably the three relievers you'll see first. Uh, my sales pitch for my 11th-rated prospect, uh, Drew Gilbert, center fielder out of Tennessee, is that he would get there first, and then he went, I believe it was 28th overall, uh, which is a crime. But to be fair, last year, my, I believe, 16th rated prospect went 30th. That was Tyler Black out of Wright State. I think if you redid that draft right now, he would go 16th. So I feel good about sticking with my Drew Gilbert pick as he's probably the most polished. He's the closest to what he's going to be, I think, of all of the hitters in this draft. Uh, and I, for reference, if you're not familiar with him, it's like an Adam Eaton, Brett Gardner, like that kind of guy. And he just looks like that right now. So do you think, and I'm curious about that, when he dropped that I, uh, you know, don't follow it the way that you do, um, you know, I became really aware of him, uh, you know, during the, uh, you know, the run to the College World Series when Tennessee was knocked out, you know, he had this incident with the umpire gets ejected from a game. Did any of that play in, do you think, to the fact that he dropped a bit? No, he was actually one of the guys that I made sure to talk to uh, some of the third parties and also the teams that do, you know, the interviews and all that kind of thing, because they don't mind telling you if the makeup is so good that they love it because they think everybody believes that or if it's so bad, they're not going to draft them because they don't care. And everyone's answer was on the 2080 scale, anywhere from a 60 to an 80. Like this, this guy may need to rein it in a little bit, uh, but they'd much rather have like the fire hose of emotion that they can then point in the right direction rather than we got to see if this guy cared. Like there's a lot of the too cool for school, never quite runs full speed, like all that kind of thing. And like people kind of hate that, like both as fans and scouts and coaches where you have to try to suss out if they care. Like, I don't want to deal with that. I want the guy's hair on fire and to be ripping his hat off when he makes a diving catch. Like that's the guy I want to watch. Uh, you mentioned Kamar Rocker. I got to say when he was drafted third, uh, you know, it, 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 what I heard immediately was from folks like, oh, boy, because uh, the perception among the people I talked to was he's throwing great this summer, got a great uh, breaking ball, fastball, I was told, uh, good velocity, but a little bit straight. And, of course, the concerns about the medicals. Chris Young came out afterward, the, the Rangers general manager, and said, we're totally fine with the medicals. Folks with other teams were like, well, the medicals are not totally fine. And the perception was that this was a case of the Rangers maybe uh, working off their growing relationship with Scott Boris because during the wintertime, they signed Corey Seager. They signed Marcus Simeon. Both those guys are Boris clients. Kamar Rocker's a Boris client. And they work out. It seemed like a pre-draft deal. Do you uh, buy into some of that conspiracy theory that this is all part of a bigger picture between Rangers and the Boris? Yeah, hard to ignore when Scott was, like, standing over the shoulder of Juan Soto. Like, the bigger pieces in this game are much bigger than the third pick in the draft. And obviously, like, you know, Seager and Simeon and all that. Uh, I You're definitely not the only person to have heard these things. Also, their next pick, who went well over slot, also a Boris client. Um, so, <laughs> not, yeah, if you want to keep adding to that. Uh, so, the Kamara thing, the... 
the medical, as far as I understand it, is right. So obviously there is a there is a sort of mysterious black box of the Mets say we don't like it. You hear all the rumors about what it was, but they're just basically like we're not going to offer him a contract. We don't like it. So since then he has a shoulder surgery, but is right back to where he was velocity and command wise seven months later, which is not like any shoulder procedure I've ever heard of. I mean, we've seen Brendan McKay, Sixto Sanchez, all of them are taking longer than that. None of them are coming right back to where they were. So when Scott says that that is a minor scope, like the results, even though it's, you know, two, three innings at a time, seems to suggest that it is minor, like, cause he's back already. Uh, but the other part is they didn't include any imaging. They didn't say anything about the elbow. That was the other thing people were worried about. Not that he's hurt right now. Again, this is the tough part with the draft. They're projecting what his health will be in the future based on what the healthy elbow looks like right now. Is there sort of stuff around it? Is there like an asteroid field essentially that's going to cause a problem later? Because obviously anyone can see him throwing 98 and say, well, he's currently healthy. But that's not what people are worried about. It's not what the Mets were worried about either. So my question is, there's, there was no imaging. There was no elbow. Did Texas get it and the other 29 teams didn't? And that's why they can feel comfortable about it because they have the complete um, the complete medical because I would feel good if I had that. And I could say, okay, I know what it is. But then the other thing is, well, then what were the Mets looking at that a shoulder procedure fixed every single thing they were worried about, which again, we don't know exactly what that was, but now it's totally settled that it's just, there's, there's a leap there that I can't quite, close the gap on it and obviously they're not going to tell me because of HIPAA laws and whatever and like I understand that I'm never going to fully get that but like if Kamara doesn't get injured for the next six years it, it kind of makes you wonder well what were the Mets doing because they're the only ones that have this complete answer of what it was a year ago and now Texas is our only data point of what it looks like right now because I think they're the team that knows the most about what's going on um I would also say uh, one more thing. The part that made teams pause about him last year is the fastball had came in at such an angle and the movement was such that it was hittable because of the plane. He's dropped his slot lower. And so now that plane has been improved a bit that also may make him more susceptible to left-handers may have to throw the change up more. Like I think he has improved some of the physical elements that weren't as good last year will certainly help him right on right as a reliever in short stints. So I think there is some physical improvement to ad- address some of that, like pure scouting and, and stats concerns from, from before, but also if you didn't know anything and just saw him on the mound now and saw him on the more mound before last draft, you'd be like, Oh, that's the same guy. seems fine. So, and there's other scouts that, you know, didn't love how he was trending from freshman year to junior year. So there's just like so many data points here that are confusing, but everyone agrees this guy's a first round talent and he's currently throwing well. So, and he went 10th last year and I don't know, that's enough for everyone listening to sort of figure out what this is. I'm still a little confused, obviously. Yeah. And and when you really look at it, you know, the, the Rangers willing to spend 300 plus million dollars in Corey Seager, you know, $200 million in Marcus Simeon. Uh, if they are comfortable with Kumar Rocker being a first-round talent, maybe not in the first three picks, they could get more comfortable when you're talking about players like Seager, like Simeon, and maybe Juan Soto. We'll have to wait and see. So, uh, Kylie, thanks for doing this. Great job. Get some sleep when this is all over. And that, that's the way to promote the draft right there. The number three pick is leading to Juan Soto. People, tune in next year. What superstar <laughs> will move because of a top-five pick? Todd Radom is the chief executive of our weekly quiz. He's a graphic artist whose work can be seen on ball fields all across America, all around the world, or you can go to his website, toddradom.com. Todd, how are you doing this week? Buster, I'm well. I'm looking forward to the second half of our season. We need to pick up the pace and finish strong. Yeah, and I need you to weigh in before we do that on the All-Star Game uniforms. A lot of conversation in social media about that, whether we should prefer 
players wearing their home uniforms it's for their team that they play for or these uh, makeshift all-star uniforms. And I, sorry, I already gave away my view on it with the way that I just framed that. Tell me what you would prefer. Well, you know exactly what I'm going to say, Buster. I have always enjoyed and appreciated the American League on one side, the National League on, us, on the other side. The teams line up along the base paths, and they are wearing their individual uniforms. And it was always such a cool thing to see the grays or powder blues versus the clean whites or the San Francisco Giants in their creams. And there's something very cool about that. But we're not going to have that anymore. Come on now. We know we can't have that anymore. It's all about the almighty dollar. So if we are going to have some alternate uniforms, the ones that we saw in Los Angeles, I got to say, I kind of liked. I like the metallic gold on the caps. I like black for the base or anthracite or whatever marketing talk they want to assign to those colors. I thought it was pretty good. It seemed celebratory. It seemed L.A., nice and sleek. And I will say from a merchandising perspective, since that is part of what I do for a living, anybody can wear those colors and look good. So um, sign me up for it if we can have the old school different uniforms. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm hearkening back to the days when I'd watch the All-Star game and wait for the Dodgers to be introduced and Ron Say and Steve Garvey and, you know, Don Sutton, as you say, in those uh, white home uniforms. I, I love those. And, uh, and you're also right. We'll never, never go back to that, at least as long as Rob Manfred's commissioner, because he's done a great <laughs> job making a lot of money for the owners. It would t- have to be a traditionalist like Bart Giamatti coming in, and you and I both know there'll never be another commissioner who works no. along those lines. It'll always be a lawyer going forward. Yeah, that's exactly it. And the one last thing I would say about these uniforms, let's go back to Coors Field last year and think about what these all-star uniforms looked like last year. And I think there would be unanimity in in proclaiming the fact that these are much better than those. Okay. Well, I, as uh, you well know, I'm not qualified to make that sort of judgment. I defer to you on that. Uh, and which ones are better. All right, let's get to this week's Phantom franchise. Buster, the year was 1935. Battered by the Great Depression, the Boston Braves were a financial catastrophe, and their owner, Judge Emil Fuchs, was severely undercapitalized. Home attendance had dropped precipitously from 1933 to 34, and the Red Sox, located little more than a mile away, were busy adding star power in their newly rebuilt Fenway Park, with future Hall of Famers Joe Cronin, Lefty Grove, and Jimmy Fox having come aboard. In arrears on his rent at Braves Field, Judge Fuchs embarked upon a plan to convert the ballpark into a dog racing track, and the stadium's owner, the Gaffney Estate, signed a lease with the Boston Kennel Club. MLB reaction to this scenario was, to say the least, highly negative. National League President Ford Frick told the Boston Globe, such an alliance between baseball and dog racing is absolutely preposterous. The Braves were literally trying to go to the dogs, Buster, and their request to share Fenway with the Red Sox was shot down with no uncertainty. In January 1935, the Braves were homeless and just about bankrupt. Into the breach stepped a syndicate led by Ernest Savard, director of the minor league Montreal Royals, who had hatched a plan to purchase the distressed Braves and move them to Montreal. This would have been three and a half decades before the Expos made their NL debut in 1969. 
The Windsor Star reported that Savard planned to supplement the Braves' few marquee names with, quote, a few French-Canadian rookies for window dressing, end quote, thus bringing MLB to Canada. Montreal was a potentially viable market by most measures, the largest city in the minors, and its ballpark, Delormier Stadium, was a modern facility that had many advantages over antiquated Braves Field. But the deal never happened. NL President Frick called a meeting of team owners who guaranteed the Braves lease at Braves Field through the 1946 season. The Braves then signed 40-year-old Babe Ruth, who was also running on fumes, in the hopes that he'd help turn the team's fortunes around, but he retired in early June. The Braves went 38 and 115 in 1935, and the league assumed control of the franchise after the conclusion of the season. The Braves remained in Boston through 1952 when they moved to Montreal before landing in Atlanta in 1966. But today, Buster, we imagine the Montreal Braves, who are this week's phantom franchise. You know, as you laid all that out, Todd, it occurred to me, I wonder if that had happened, and it doesn't sound like it was especially close. It was more, uh, you know, talked about in theory. Um, if that had happened, I wonder if it would have any chance it might have sped up uh, the, the uh, breaking of baseball's color barrier. Because uh, as you know, I, I mean, just perspectives at that time there were just very different in Montreal, which is part of the reason why the Dodgers placed Jackie Robinson with that franchise the year before he was promoted to Brooklyn. It's a great point, Buster. The Dodgers giving Jackie the perhaps best chance to succeed uh, in Montreal. Uh, there, There is a statue of him there now. Uh, he did pretty well up there in terms of uh, in terms of the atmosphere and all that. So you're right. I mean, there have always been these discussions about Bill Vack buying the Washington Senators in the you know before Jackie and uh, you know integrating the majors. It's a great point. We'll never know, of course. But Montreal, uh, past, present, future, perhaps as we've talked about, often the site of a of a future expansion franchise. Uh, they just need a new ballpark, whatever the case. Yeah, and I think that conversation is going to happen within the next decade once they settle these. Uh, situations with the uh, with the athletics and the Rays. All right, let's get to this week's quiz, bringing in Sarah and Taylor. All right, and again, for the record, as we said last week, the standings are as follows. Buster with eight now, Sarah with five, and Taylor with three. So here's this week's question. Which one of the following dollar figures is lowest? Is it A, the entire team payroll of the inaugural 1993 Colorado Rockies? Is it B, the price George M. Steinbrenner spent to purchase the New York Yankees in 1972? Is it C, Reggie Jackson's career earnings? Or is it D, the price of a T206 Honus Wagner baseball card that was sold in 2021? The lowest dollar figure. The entire team payroll of the 93 Rockies, George M. Steinbrenner's purchase price of the New York Yankees in 1972, Reggie Jackson's career earnings, or the T206 Honus Wagner card that was sold in 2021. All right, I'm going to go first. I need a ruling, though, from the chief executive of the weekly quiz. When you talk about George Steinbrenner purchase price, are you talking about his personal uh, contribution to the sale of that team, or are you talking about the overall purchase price? All in, what the Yankees were sold by CBS for. Okay, I, uh, I'm i going to say B, Steinbrenner, and the purchase of the Yankees. Sarah, you go next since you're second. I'm also going to say B because I feel like 
in the 70s, prices, inflation, you know, the whole thing. Opportunity for Taylor if he wants to be different. Uh, I'll go Reggie Jackson's overall career earnings. You are all incorrect because the lowest would have been the price of a T206 Honus Wagner baseball card sold for $6.606 million in 2021. Reggie made $9.15 million over the course of his long career. The Yankees go for $10 million. What an investment. And the entire Colorado Rockies inaugural roster was paid $8,829,000. So we hold serve. Uh, and here's a little piece of information why I, I mentioned because I, I uh, in working on a book on the Yankees years ago, found out that the George Steinbrenner's personal contribution to the purchase of that franchise in 1973 was $700,000. Wow. And that has led him and his family to, you know, led him to, to being the owner of this monster franchise that's now worth. What would you guess, Todd, if they put them on the market, four or five billion dollars? Probably five billion and going northward, I would imagine. That's so a, a, lot, a lot of minority investors, Buster. And what was the famous saying back back in the day? There is no, uh, you know, no more of a minority than being a minority investor in the New York Yankees. That's exactly right. And as time went on, George bought, bought out a lot of his partners, original partners. Um, turned out pretty well for him. That's for sure. You know? I'd say so. So, all right. <laughs> I appreciate it. Thanks, Todd. All right, guys. Thanks so much. So Monday of the All-Star Week always presents a unique opportunity for reporters because you have all these stars gathered in one place. You get media availability, like with Mike Trout, who's been named team captain for uh, the USA WBC entrant. He was asked about that. Uh, so I'm, uh, I'm excited. You know, when he first came up to me now, you know, talk to me uh, means a lot. You know, I've missed the opportunity the first time and uh, I knew this was a, a chance I can't miss. So it's going to be uh, fun for the team that we uh, put together and, and Tony puts together. It's uh, looking forward to it in uh, March. So He was asked about the condition of his back. He just went on the injured list. Back is, uh, it's all right. You know, obviously thought it could have been a lot better. Um, you know, it's just uh, one of them things that's got to get it right before I start swinging some. Aaron Judge was asked about being an all-star. Oh, it's it's a incredible honor. You know, never want to take any of these times uh, for granted, that's for sure. You know, very few people get an opportunity, you know, come here for an all-star game, represent the New York Yankees, and uh, this is, uh, you know, a special honor, you know, and especially the crew that we got, you know, out here in L.A. representing the Yankees is a special group. So, you know, we're going to enjoy it, soak it all in, and, you know, have some fun and win a game. Mookie Betts was asked about representing the Dodgers in the year in which baseball is celebrating the Jackie Robinson 75th anniversary of his debut. I'm just, you know, super special. You know, all his, his whole legacy and everything he meant to the Dodgers. Um, I mean, you just, you know, me being, that's the reason why I can wear the uniform I'm wearing now. And, um, you know, it's just uh, super, super special just to be a part of an all-star game in general. But, you know, being in your backyard is definitely uh, something that I'm curious to see. Bleacher Tweets. Alrighty, Buster. Bleacher Tweets for Tuesday. David Campbell at David Campbell Sr. writes in, will Major League Baseball ever change the official game rule? It's wrong. You can hit home runs or have a dozen strikeouts and not have them count. Look at Dale Murphy with 398 career home runs. Might he have broken 400 if games all suspended uh, were picked up again, I think, is what David's asking. What do you think? Yep. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you wish that there was a consistent set of rules throughout the history of the sport. That's just not the case, not only in baseball, not in football, not in the NBA, uh, which is why when you, you know, look at records that are set in 2022, you, they're not apples to apples to what Babe Ruth did in the 1920s. Ben at Matt Rat 103 writes in, it's officially time that we declare the AL Central as this year's GOAT Rodeo, right? It's astonishing to me that one of these teams will host a playoff series. I guess so. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I think the GOAT Rodeo, I, I was kind of thinking about the American League East teams mm-hmm. that are going for the wild card spot because you got four of those, but you're right. Uh, as we sit here, you know, you keep on waiting for the White Sox to get on a run. The Twins have stretches when they look like they're going to take control of the division, then they don't, and the Guardians just keep on popping along, you know, winning it at about a 520-525 clip. Yeah, I think the Twins are going to do it there. And I also thought AL East, but I think the Yankees disqualified that because they're out so far ahead. Yeah, it's not really a race when the uh, the team, we already know one of the teams making it from the East. Mm-hmm. All right, last one for today. Steven Malotsky at Malotsky writes in, is there something unpleasant within the Nationals that motivates players to leave? Harper, Rendon, Max, et cetera. Uh, I think what motivates them to leave is the fact that they're not necessarily a big market team. Uh, And a lot of these guys have opportunities to play in the biggest markets for the most money, which is totally their right. Uh, Steven Strasburg is is kind of a homebody. He wanted to stay with Washington. Uh, The other guys are going to pursue the biggest stage. And the biggest stage typically is going to happen with the Dodgers, the Yankees, the Mets, the Red Sox, the usual suspects. Yep. It's all about the money. That's it for Bleacher Tweets. Hashtag Bleacher Tweets on Twitter. And uh, we'll be back on Thursday this week, not Friday. That's it for today. My thanks to Carl, Kylie, Todd, Sarah, and Taylor. Have a great day, everybody. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. And remember, hate and inequality based on skin color is something we need to fight against every single day. Ooh, sweet. Okay. So just to put this on your radar. Dogs are an important part of our lives. That means protecting them from parasites. Ask your vet about NexGuard Plus, a Foxaloner, Moxidectin, and pyrantal chewable tablets. NexGuard Plus Chews provides one-and-done monthly protection against fleas, ticks, heartworm disease, roundworms, and hookworms. Plus, they're delicious and easy to give. Use with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurological disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting a preventive. Ask about NextGuard Plus Choose.